You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Good morning. Uh, as the kids are going to Redemption Kids, um, if the ushers, uh, if anyone doesn't have a Bible here, if you could put your hand up, the ushers would love to give you one. We'd love to open up God's Word together this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up. The ushers would be happy to give you one. This week we'll be uh, taking a break from First Peter, but what a blessing that has been to work through uh, the book of First Peter so far. I don't, if anyone thought twice about speeding on the way here this morning, it was, uh, it was a sobering word last week, and just really thankful for Pastor Trevor walking us through that. The, this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm, a Psalm of David, Psalm 24. But before you turn there in your Bible, we'll be looking at the background uh, a little bit. 2 Samuel 6. If you want to go somewhere, go to 2 Samuel 6. And going through the, the Psalm 24, I just want to tell you where I want us to go to this morning. During our time this morning in the Word, I want us to become better worshipers. And, and let me tell you how I want us to get there. This is kind of an idea taken from Redemption Essentials. It's a book called The Gospel-Centered Life. And in that, um, as we go through Psalm 24 this morning, I believe it's going to give us a much bigger view of who God is as we go through Psalm 24. And we're going to see God in a greater and greater light. And as we see God in a greater and greater light, it'll cause us to see ourselves smaller. And as we see ourselves smaller and God in that greater light, we'll also see our own sinfulness. And the gap between us and God will continue to grow. But there in the middle, Christ. That is how we meet the gap. So I want to lift up God. And in doing so, I want us to see ourselves as we are. And then I want to preach Christ. So that's where I want us to go this morning in Psalm 24, that we become better worshipers. If you just bow with me and pray. Lord, I thank you for a time of, of worship, singing praise to your holy name. I thank you for this opportunity now that I get to share your word. I pray that you would speak through me, that your word would speak to our hearts. You give us soft hearts and open ears, O oh Lord. And just use this time to minister to us, to point us to Christ, to lift him up. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I just want to give you some background to this psalm before we jump in. It would take place in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and in going there, uh, what is happening? David just recently became king of Israel. All the tribes came together and recognized him as king. He just recently took over Jerusalem uh, to make it the capital of his kingdom. And David's next step, now that he had established his kingdom and his capital, he wanted to go get the ark, the ark of the Lord, and bring it to Jerusalem. You, you would know, remember the ark of the Lord. Uh, they made it during their time in the wilderness. It has the two cherubim facing towards each other. In the middle between the cherubim would be called the mercy seat, the atonement cover. And on the day of atonement once a year, uh, the high priest would make sacrifices and put blood upon the seat in the middle where God dwelt to atone for the sins of Israel. So the Ark of the Covenant's a pretty big deal, but before David went and got it, it was just sitting uh, at this guy's place in the house of Abinadad, 
in a place called Kiriath-Jerim. Because Saul, the previous king, just kind of left the ark there. It wasn't really his concern to have God uh, dwell amongst them. But David, a man after God's own heart, he wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem. So just picking up in 2 Samuel chapter 6, I'll look at verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, another name for Kiriath-Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Can you just picture the noise, picture how raucous it would have been as they're celebrating, as they're just praising God, going to take the ark. It doesn't stay that way, though. In verse 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Wow, a time of rejoicing turned to a time of mourning. Uzzah had a wrong view of God, and it cost him. He thought that he was more holy than the ground, with the ark would touch. And, and he, was, he was wrong, he was dead wrong. A.W. Tozer wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You can see how having a wrong view of God can have deadly consequences that's not the only time in the Bible we'd see that. Just think in the Old Testament, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, offered up strange fire, were wiped out. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, and even just think of our, ourselves. Have you ever had a wrong view of God and felt the consequences? I mean, not to death. But have you ever not believed God is big enough and just dealt with worry and anxiety and stress because like, God doesn't have it? I need to control it. Or not trusting that God is good and that his ways are good. And so we want to choose our own way, maybe with relationships or friendships that are toxic. You know, kind of like my will be done, not, not God's. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Not believing God will provide what we need. So you work yourself in the ground to attain more, like just a little more. I need to get a little bit more. I think we could all relate to having a wrong view of God and how this can negatively affect our lives. Well, following the death of Uzzah, David had a greater reverence for God like never before. It caused him, as we'll see, to transport the ark in a different way. It caused him to worship God in a new way. And, and as that happened, it also caused him to write Psalm 24, the psalm we're going to look at this morning, if you'd like to turn there to Psalm 24. I, I believe Psalm 24 can help us to have a proper view of God which should lead us to a greater depth of worship. Psalm 24, if we, looking in verses 1 to 2, I want us to note how seeing the glory of God in creation should lead us to worship. Verses 1 to 2. A psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas 
and establish it upon the rivers. God owns everything. You know, we live in a day and age where uh, many of our devices, many of the things we own, if you would look somewhere on it, it's going to say made in China, right? Like just so many things are made in China. If we had eyes to really see, everything in all creation would have a sign that said made by God everywhere. In fact, if you think our, our, uh, our fingerprints, everyone has a different fingerprint. Over 7 trillion people. Billions, sorry. I just upped it a little bit there, but. <laughs> think about snowflakes. Every snowflake different. That's amazing. Just the, the seasons. You, you know that after, well, whatever, win, I don't know if we're in winter or fall. It's confusing here in Alberta. But we know spring is coming and then summer and then and fall it carries on because God has made it that way. He owns everything. And looking at creation should remind us of our creator, should cause us to praise him. I'm thinking like Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. There, it's settled, right? The beauty of creation should just cause us to worship, period. Also, I just want to point out, I'm going to be quoting various scriptures. If you have uh, just a piece of paper, just write them down. You can look them up later. But... That's it. Just looking at creation, we should worship God, period. But we know that is not the case. In fact, Romans 1 would tell us what's happening. Romans 1, uh, verses 18 and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We know that not everyone would see creation and turn to the creator. In fact, many reject God. They turn to themselves. And so they're forced to come up with a different way to explain things. You know, we know many people believe the Big Bang created everything. There's a simple way to explain it. Uh, in a philosophy class I had to take in college, I didn't, I didn't pay as much attention as I should have. But one thing I remember the, the teacher said to explain this kind of, of thinking, she said, you know, many people believe it's from the goo to the zoo to you. Like, this is, that's the way we were created, from the goo to the zoo to you. That's how many people are like, well, we don't believe in God, so how did we get here? But, of course, we would not hold to that. We believe that God made all we can see and that what we can't see is Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or um, authorities or rulers or dominions, all things were created through him and for him. Right? That's what we would hold to. We see God's hand in creation everywhere. Right? If you go to the mountains, you sit up there and you look, you just see, wow, the beauty that God has made. My family and I these days are watching this show on Netflix as they take you into the ocean. And, and they have these cuttlefish. I don't know if anyone's seen cuttlefish. They should be called something different. They're kind of ugly. But uh, they're called cuttlefish. And they talk to each other by changing colors. Like, amazing. Absolutely amazing. There's another... A uh, picture there of like hundreds of hammer sharks swimming around. 
wow, God made that. That is unbelievable. And you even just think about ourselves, how intricate and wonderfully we are made. Just, just the fact that if you get cut and it bleeds, it, it just, it's healed. It's phenomenal. You break your arm, you put it back into place and continue on. It's amazing how God has made us. Right? We weren't just created willy-nilly. <laughs> but we were created for a purpose. And remember, I don't know if, you, if you've heard of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. There's a, a group of saints many years ago, 1647. And they got together and they, they said, we want to make a catechism, a way to teach people sound doctrine through question and answer. And the first question that they came up with is, what is the chief end of man? Like, why do we exist? We believe God has made us. Why did he make us? And their answer was man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell. And we are made to glorify God. And in creation, we see God's glory revealed. And that should cause us to worship, but it's not enough. It's not enough to just acknowledge there's a creator and have some sort of spiritual experience. You know, we can see that in some, in, sometimes in like mountain communities, like Cam or, or Banff. Like there's like this, this sense of worship kind of mixed in like new age, but it's not worshiping the creator, but creation. So we need more than just creation in which to bring us to worship the Lord. We remember Romans 1. Even though they have creation, they've rejected God. So yes, he has made us, but we know there's more to the story than that. We know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Remember Uzzah. And as we see more of who God is, we'll see more of our own sinfulness. But when we see that, it reveals to us our greatest need is for a Savior. Look at verses 3 to 6. And we'll note how seeing the glory of God in salvation should lead us to worship. In verse 3, David writes, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? You know, I really see David really asking that question following the death of Uzzah. He's like, how, how can we bring the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem? He was asking that if we would continue on in, in 2 Samuel. He's like, don't take the ark anymore. It stayed with a guy named Obed-Edom for three months. David's like, who can bring God's presence to Jerusalem? Who can do it? Not Uzzah, not sinful men. But David answers his question as the psalm goes on. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? In verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And clean hands, that would imply innocent of wrongdoing. It's an outward measure of character and righteousness. Such people are free or exempt from guilt, therefore punishment. A person who has a pure heart, it would shift the issue of righteousness before God for outward acts to something inward. The person who has a pure heart before the Lord. Jeremiah 17, 9, though, says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand this? You know, Jesus said in, in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you ever said an unkind word, a curse word, gossip? 
etc. Where does that come from? It comes from the overflow of our hearts. Clean hands and a pure heart, would, would that be David? How, how about you and me? You know, it's like, oh, okay, David, I, I get it. Clean hands and a pure heart. Okay, David, like, who can enter in? But he continues on to add to this person. The same one who will stand in the holy place, continue on in verse 4, is one who does not lift up his soul to what is false. You know, one who does not worship idols. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus uh, 20, verse 3. What did John Calvin once say about man's hearts? He said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. What we naturally do is lift up our souls to what is false. That's where we naturally go. We naturally put anything else before God. And I know when we we talk of idols, we, we, we think of something physical. I don't know if anyone's ever seen idol worship uh, a number of years ago, we were in South Korea. We were hiking in the mountains. In Korea, it's, it's either uh, they're Christian. There's a huge group of Christians, or they're Buddhists. And we're hiking up in the mountains and came across literally like a 50-foot Buddha. Like, it was just, like, massive. I was just like, wow. You're just amazed at such a statue. And then someone came up beside me, got down on their knees, and, and started bowing down. I was like, what? Like, no, like, someone made that. What are you doing? So it's easy for us to say, like, well, we don't have huge idols that we worship to. But if you think of idolatry, it's not just talking about physical stone idols. Just think about anything that, like, dominates your thoughts or the attention of your heart and just grips you. It could be money, a job. It could be kids, friends, you know, entertainment, sports team, food. Unfortunately, we're really good at turning a lot of things into idols. Also, the same person who, who shall stand in his holy place, David finishes there in verse 4, the one who does not swear deceitfully. Thinking of the ninth commandment, you shall not lie or you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, taken from Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You know, just as you think about it, I'm like, I'm sure all of us have told a lie. We have deceived others, expanded on the truth, or hidden something we're ashamed of. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Who is that person? In verse 5, it says of this person that they will receive blessing from the Lord. In David's time, the blessing from the Lord for Israel, a blessing would mean like a good crop. God would provide for food. He would provide safety, protection from other nations. A blessing from the Lord for David would mean a continual throne, right? The Messiah would come and be established for all of eternity from David. And the psalm continues that this person will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. The person who walks in the way described has a right relationship with God. They receive blessing and righteousness from God. How amazing. And verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now you think, well, how did this work out for David? Well, following the death of, of Uzzah, like how did David seek the face of the God of Jacob? He didn't have clean hands and a pure heart. What happened? The ark, as I said, stayed at Obed-Edom's place for three months, and, and he was blessed. Because later on, as it talks 
about his descendants. He had like 62 descendants like serving uh, in the temple area. So that was his blessing. But the writers of First Chronicles tell us how David changed the way that they would carry the ark. They realized they, they didn't do it that the way that Moses had prescribed in the law. So they, they're like, we need to get the Levitical priests together and they need to be the ones who are carrying the ark. And we need to offer sacrifices to the Lord before we take and move the ark. That's how they were going to seek the face of the God of Jacob. And even more than that, as David went to move the ark, his reverence for God increased. And so he desired to worship God as the Lord had prescribed. You see, you know what else David did as they brought the ark to Jerusalem? He assembled the Levites and got them to organize themselves to play instruments. He, he got the, all the leaders and said, grab your brothers. And it, it amounted to 852 of them. And I want you guys to be playing instruments. Could you, like we have an amazing uh, worship band. Imagine 852 people playing instruments to praise the Lord. And even from this time, David sets aside Asaph and his brothers, and he says, I want you to continually to give thanks to the Lord every day from now on. I just want you to see that, um, that David's view of God grew, and then his worship grew. Do you remember the setting as they took the ark the, the second time properly? Do you remember how David enters Jerusalem with the ark? He's wearing a linen ephod, and he's dancing with all his might. He didn't care who was watching him. He didn't care who was around him. He was just praising God. That's what he was about. He was praising God, the Lord of his salvation. He was giving glory to God. So that's how David lived out this psalm. What about you and me? Let's look again at verses 3 to 6, again noting how the glory of God and salvation should lead us to worship. I just want you to see in, in this psalm, it's not as much like Paul's letter, you just move from one thought to the other, but we're kind of, we're going through it, we're coming back around through it. Now we're just thinking of ourselves again. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully? Who can say this is me? Who can say that? I, I have clean hands and a pure heart. Do you see the gap between us and God increasing? I want you to see here, I believe only Jesus has truly fulfilled that. Right? Christ has clean hands and a pure heart. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus never lifted up his soul to what is false. But no, Jesus, he was lifted up on the cross for us who would live in false ways, Right? John 3.14 says, And as Moses was lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Right? Amen. That is putting our faith and trust in Christ, who has accomplished on the cross, that we would receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation. Right? That Christ is our righteousness. That whoever would repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in what he has done, they would receive Christ's righteousness. 
covering over them. It's amazing. His perfect life credited to our account. Charles Spurgeon said this, If our hands are not clean hands, let us wash them in Jesus' precious blood and pray to God lifting up holy hands. Matthew 5, 8, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Friends, it's, it's through believing in Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection, right, that our hearts inwardly can be cleansed, our hands outwardly can be made clean, that we can be pure of heart through Jesus Christ. How amazing. Praise the Lord. God's Spirit is changing our desires and thoughts, right, so that we now we don't lift up our souls to what is false, but we lift up our souls to God. And we can walk in the truth and speak the truth. And we are blessed. And verse 6 says, And such is the generation of those who seek and who seek the face of the God of Jacob. If you are in Christ, how do you seek the face of God? Grow in your relationship with Christ. We know this is done through prayer, through getting into the word, right? Like, you can go to the mountains. I don't care how many times you can go, and it is amazing, and it's beautiful, but a mountain will never tell you that Jesus Christ is the way in which to be saved. You need to open up the word. That's where we find out about that. So we need to get in the word and prayer, and then we need to keep gathering together, the church. When you've been saved, you want to worship, amen? I remember, like, before being a, a Christian, like, I wasn't one to sing songs. Like, no, that's not for me. After I got saved, I'm like, yeah, I want to sing songs to the Lord. I want to praise his name. And there you're thinking, like, man, you can sing songs that worship at home. Like, one of the songs we sing today, maybe it just resonates with your heart. Just get it. Just keep playing it. Keep praising him. You can praise the Lord in the car. You can give thanks always and often, but more than that, you want to praise God with other people, right? You want to gather together with other, it's just so important to like, man, that person loves Jesus too. Maybe sometimes you can have a really hard work or a hard week, hard time at work, only time you hear Jesus is a curse word, but then you gather on a Sunday, no, Jesus is king. It's a wonderful thing to hear that. Uh, just this past week, sorry, I'll just... Um, Skipping ahead. One of our distinctives of our church, right, is passionate worship. And I believe one of the reasons we are about passionate worship is because we open up the word and then we see more of who God is. And that's just the result is we want to worship him passionately. Yeah, this past week I, I got the privilege of hearing um, a pastor from China. He, he was pastoring the underground church in China at our chapel service this week. And he mentioned a number of years previous when he was in China that they couldn't meet during the daytime. It's kind of like this again, depends in, in different areas, but they couldn't meet. There's way too much pressure from the police. They'd all be arrested. Like, why would they get together? So they decided to meet in the early morning. You know what time their service was that they meet? 2.30 in the morning. That's when the church would gather. You think, wow, why would they do that? Why would they gather at 2.30 in the morning? Because Christ is worthy. First Peter 1, 8-9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So there are just, I just want you to see there's a number of ways that we can seek the face of God. Prayer in the word. Gathering together as a church. Worship. Worship is a big way you can seek the face of God. Hope you're seeing the glory of God and salvation, how that should lead us to worship. It says in the, in the psalm, Selah, which seemingly means pause. It was like a, a musical term, like stop, take, take a moment. I think we need more of that in our lives. That's just a side note. I don't know about you, but man, it's like I've run over here, I'm busy doing this, and I'm busy doing that, and I'm busy doing that. And I love that about the Psalms. Sometimes you read something, Selah, like, like stop, like take that in. Looking at verses 7 to 10, note how seeing the glory of God in proclamation should lead us to worship. Look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The commentators disagree about what this means. I think in the original context, as they're bringing the ark, they're bringing it into a tent. And you, you just think, it wasn't that they actually like, needed to like, lift up, like there wasn't enough room. But you think the God who has heaven as a throne and the earth as his footstool, is there room? Is there room for him? Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient, of ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. This, this term, king of glory, it only appears here in this psalm. Nowhere else in the Bible, the king of glory. And think about how God had displayed his glory up until this time, right? From one man, Abraham, preserving a people for himself and bringing them to Egypt and blessing them and, and then bringing them out of Egypt by utterly destroying the Egyptians. And then God led them in the desert for 40 years with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You know, think how he brought them into the promised land, Jericho. Like, it's such an amazing story. Seven times around, and a shout, and the walls just collapse in. The Lord of glory. This is the God who is holy and righteous. Who ooze a drop just, just by touching the ark. The king of glory. And then the question's asked, who is this king of glory? And it's answered in this song. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. After, after God wiped out the Egyptians at the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea, if you just think about that, the Egyptians at the time would have been the, the strongest army. Like in, the, in those ancient times, at that time, it was like Egypt in its heyday. The strongest army like had the Hebrews pinned and they had water in front of them and God's miraculous deliverance, right? Opening up the water and they cross over as on dry land. And as the soldiers go to cross and the water closes in amongst them, Moses praises God after he writes a song. And in his song, 
he says this in Exodus 15, 3, the Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. New American Standard uh, translates the same part, the Lord is a warrior. Saying the same thing. Even just before David transported the ark, he was battling against the Philistines and getting victory upon victory because God was with him. Right? The Lord is mighty in battle. In verses 9 to 10, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Commentator Van Gemrim says this, Yahweh is the Lord of hosts, almighty. The great king has at his hand innumerable heavenly hosts, reflecting the glory and splendor of undisputed lordship. He's the commander of all the powers in heaven and on earth. His battles always win him victory. Amen. I just want to take a a moment and look at verses 7 to 10 one more time. If you see a kind of I want to say, hey, what did that mean first for David? But now, what does that mean for us? Did you know that this psalm, Psalm 24, was known in the early church as the Ascension Psalm? Ascension Psalm. They read it to commemorate when Jesus ascended into heaven, right, and returned to his heavenly throne. That's how they would read this and remember that. Can you picture it? In verse 7, lift Up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Christ, the King of glory. Christ, the Creator. Right? The Eternal One, clothed with human flesh, died on a cross, took our sins, our punishment, and then rose again. And then He ascended into heaven. Think about that. How amazing. The King of kings and Lord of lords, the King of glory, returning to his heavenly home after he accomplished on the cross that which was prepared for him before time began. Wow. You got verse 8. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Think about how Jesus is the warrior. Think about how Jesus is mighty in battle, how on the cross, how he defeated sin and how he defeated the devil and disarmed the enemy. Paul, the apostle Paul writes in Colossians 2.15 about Jesus, what he did on the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And the picture there is of the Roman soldiers returning from battle and the, the defeated enemy in front of them, head held down in front of them. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He is mighty in battle. And verses 9 to 10, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Spurgeon wrote this, The picture is highly poetical and shows how the ascension of our Lord opened wide heaven's gate. Blessed be God, the gates have never been shut since. The open gates of heaven invite the weakest believer to enter in. And really anyone here among us 
who you have not trusted in Jesus Christ. All of us on our own have unclean hands and impure hearts. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, look to Christ and be saved. He has made a way for sinners to be saved. To repent of your sins and trust in him. And he will give you clean hands and a pure heart. Do you see God's glory in creation? Do you see God's glory in salvation? Do you see God's glory in proclamation? Do you know this king of glory? He is worthy. Will you worship him? We must sing songs to him, but that's not enough. We must give him verbal assent, like I will follow him, but that is not enough. The call is for our very lives laid down at his feet. I'm thinking Romans 12.1. In, in Romans, Paul gives from 1 to 11, like this is the gospel. This is what Jesus has done for you. And then writes in 12.1, Therefore, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Like, how, what do you do in response to the king of glory? In everything, Lord, have your way, right? At work, I want to live for Christ at my job. I want to parent my children with Christ in mind. If you're in school, I want to do my studies and give honor to Jesus. I want to treat my family and glorify God. I want to, I want to talk to my neighbors and talk with them and, and, and glorify Christ. Any and everywhere that we would give honor and praise to the King of glory. I just want to close with, again, the passage from 1 Peter. We'll be back there next week. 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Speaking of Jesus. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. If you just bow with me as I close in prayer. Holy, Holy Father, I thank you for the time this morning. I thank you for a chance to open up your word. Lord, and what we saw there in Psalm 24, I pray you would seal it in our hearts. Lord, I ask that um, we would continually learn and, and to see you greater and greater in our lives. Lord, daily. And as we do so, as we see our own unworthiness, as we see our, how small we are, Holy Spirit, lift up Christ in our eyes, in our hearts, that we would see how great, how perfect, how precious Jesus is and what he did on the cross. Oh God, have our, have our lives in every area that you would be glorified and honored. Oh King of glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.